Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try No hell below us Above us only sky And all the people living for today. Welcome. My name is Anne Wilson, and I'm delighted to host Series 3 of our Emerge Australia podcasts. Series 3 is our clinical series in which we bring to our listeners some of the world's leading clinicians and researchers in the field of ME-CFS and long COVID. This is so exciting for us, and we hope you all enjoy the series. Today, we have a real treat in store for you all. But firstly, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to elders past, present, emerging, and those listening today. So, Hot on the heels of his brilliant presentation at the National Centre of Neuroimmunology and Emerging Diseases, NCNED, conference in New South Wales last week, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Professor Alain Moreau. Dr Moreau is a full professor in the Faculty of Dentistry, Stomatology Department, cross-appointed to the Biochemistry and Molecular Medicine Department in the Faculty of Medicine at the Université de Montréal. He served as Director of Research and Chief Scientific Officer of the Saint-Justine University Hospital, was a Director of the Network for, for Canadian Oral Health Research, and among other prestigious appointments, Professor Moreau is Director of the Interdisciplinary Canadian Collaborative Myalgic Encephalomyelitis, ICAN-ME, Research Network. Professor Moreau is a serving member of the Scientific Advisory Board of the Open Medicine Foundation in the USA and is Senior Editorial Board Member for Scientific Reports such as Nature Co. UK. Importantly, Professor Moreau is co-founder and Chief Scientific Officer of Inception Therapeutics, Inc., a startup based in Montreal, developing diagnostic tests for primarily osteoarthritis and new disease-modifying osteoarthritis drugs. Dr Moreau's main research interests also target other complex adult diseases such as myalgic encephalomyelitis, fibromyalgia and long covid Welcome, Professor Moreau, and welcome to Australia. Thank you very much, Anne, for this great opportunity to interact with you and your audience. Wonderful. So just a couple of light things. Is this your first time in Australia? Has you has your work led you to Australia before? or It's, it, yeah. it's the second time in Australia, and I really enjoy it. So the very first time was uh, at the first uh, Emerge Australia conference. So I was at that time, I think three or four years ago, invited as as a guest speaker. So, and I discovered beautiful Australia and Melbourne and the region of Geelong. So so I really enjoyed my my trip. And from that very first conference, I developed 
uh, scientific collaboration with colleagues here in Melbourne, like Dr. Chris Armstrong and Dr. Neil McGregor. So they are, those are not only collaborators, but are very close friends now. Oh, that's so wonderful. That's how it happens in the research fraternity, isn't it? Um, that's really great. So can you tell us a bit about yourself and maybe give us an insight into your cross-appointment from the Faculty of Dentistry to Biochemistry and Molecular Medicine, for those of us who may not have a really good understanding? Yes. First of all, I'm a molecular geneticist, so I'm doing molecular biology I'm a researcher, I'm, I'm not a clinician, although my research program is starting from the cell, the DNA, animal models up to uh, humans and, and, and thanks to uh, key collaboration with, with the clinicians. So I can do the almost a full spectrum of research from basic science to translational research and clinical science uh, also. Um, my Field of expertise in molecular genetics is about bone diseases primarily. So I've been trained in, in that aspect uh, several years ago. Okay. And uh, I've been appointed initially, I've been recruited at St. Justin University Hospital, which is the leading uh, pediatric uh, child and mother hospital in Canada, uh, the third in size in North America. So this is a huge uh, hospital, which uh, a very important research center. and. Uh, I've been recruited to develop a research activity on idiopathic scoliosis, so which is the spinal deformity that is very common among adolescents. And I've been very successful in that field as well. I develop additional bone disease or bone-related diseases in the field like osteoarthritis, osteoporosis. And in um, I'm start I start initially my career at the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Medicine as a research assistant professor, uh, and I've been I received one day a call from the associate dean research at the Faculty of Dentistry say we want you, <laughs> so I say okay that's fine but I I, I posed some uh, condition at that time so I wanted to keep my affiliation in the uh, Department of Biochemistry because I really engaged to uh, supervise graduate students and it was easier to have more a diversity of students in the Faculty of Medicine than the Faculty of Dentistry. And, and they agreed. And that's why I'm a full professor now in both faculties, uh, having been promoted at every stage of my academic career. So every rank, so uh, both departments and faculties vote and support me toward to that. So this is a rare situation when someone can be a really full professor in, in both faculties. So which great me a great pride, but also more opportunity to enroll students in different programs. Although you must know that the Faculty of Dentistry, this is where a lot of or most of the research on bone disease are performed. So calcified tissues and bones are related. Uh, like teeth, and, and, and there's a lot of uh, craniofacial deformities, which is also one other aspect of my research program. So that's why I start uh, early on from the Faculty of Medicine and Faculty of Dentistry, but I I'm remain on both worlds at the same time. Wow. Wow, you are a busy man. <laughs> but But really fascinating, fascinating work. Is there any, I, I didn't prepare this question, but is there... Any link at all to MECFS when you're looking at dentistry and what can go wrong and infection 
and how that may impact the rest of the body? I, I would say yes, because, uh, and this is not on the immediate uh, concerns, but uh, many uh, uh, patients suffering of MECFS have some oral health issues, very serious ones. So they are more prone to periodontal diseases, for instance. Uh, it's unclear why, okay, is this related to more often very severe sore throat or things? So there are something going on. But to be honest, a lot of the um, attentions have been on the immune side, which also may affect the oral cavity, of course. Yes. And 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 I think uh, more research on the oral aspect deserve to um, our attentions. Uh, I have some colleagues. So you mentioned that um, I'm the director of the I Can't See ME Research Network, which is a national research network. So we are increasing our research capacity and we support right now a team that are interested about some oral health concern in MECFS patient, as well as some possible relationship between uh, some subtle change in the oral cavity and sleep apnea. So, wow. so they are sleep expert in the field of oral health and, and now they are putting their attention thanks to the network support to address through a pilot study, uh, this relationship. So your question is quite great. Oh, wonderful. Oh, I'm glad. Thank you. So um, you just mentioned I can see me. Um, I guess the first part of this question is what led you to an interest in MECFS? And then the second part is, can you tell us a little bit about your work at I Can CME and the work of your network? Yes. So I was really no knowledge uh, beside that. I heard in the past chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, but I have no clue about what was really the disease. And and uh, and one of a very close friend working in the field of scoliosis uh, uh contacted me uh, to ask my help at that time i was director of research and chief scientific officer at saint justin university hospital and he asked me how can we do better research in the field and can if i can provide some assistance in terms of uh, do, doing some kind of inventory of research to do some research to say what is the state of the art what, where, what we know, what we don't know, and where we should go. So so that was my mandate that, and I accept to do that as per my role of director of research at that time. And I found the disease very fascinating, to be honest with you. That was a true uh, complex disease. Uh, I called, and I've been quoted in the past, that MECFS is probably among the last 21st century medical enigma. And I still believe that this is still true, especially for a disease that affect millions of person worldwide. So it's not a rare disease, uh, but is a disease certainly that is medically orphan and that deserve more attention and more resource and expertise. And that's why when I, I submit my report about what we know, what we know, what we don't know and where we should go, I asked the permissions to this uh, private foundation that man gave me this mandate to listen. I think I can do something. Let me a few weeks to submit you a kind of proposal and uh, you are free to accept or refuse it. 
and they accepted <laughs> at that time. And that's why I that lo- launched my 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 whole program uh, on on MSFS. Uh, and more recently, also uh, on long COVID. So that's the way that I I depart from complex bone disease or musculoskeletal health uh, issues toward MSFS, and they are quite related because there are some musculoskeletal health issues, of course, in MSFS and a related condition like fibromyalgia. So I think I'm well positioned uh, to. Uh, provide some uh, insights and, and and I was very uh, happy to uh, develop a very active research program since 2015 on that aspect. Oh, that's amazing. So um, the network, uh, ICANME, uh, what can you tell us about the network? And uh... so, so I can see me uh, is, is a natural extension of what, what I've done before. So uh, part of my mandate from that uh, private foundation base in, in, in Montreal was uh, to uh, put on the map at least uh, MECFS uh, research agenda for, for in Canada. And we create in 2018 the first uh, Montreal International Conference on MECFS that was very successful at that time. Uh, we bring people, a lot of people that have no clue about who's doing what, and and we, I think we 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 try to bring the who's of uh, MSFS at that time uh, on the clinical side uh, with patients as well as the research side, and, and that was a preliminary step or, or a stepping stone, if you wish, to prepare the application for a national research network. I can't see me. And by the way, the name has been selected by patients' partners. So for them, they see that in the I can see me or I can see me, uh, where they are, why we are doing this and 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 why we need to work together. So in a very the seeming the collaborative uh, manner that we are involved. So this research network is quite exceptional because um the patient partners and patient leaders, I should say. Uh, they are embedded at all the decision levels. So they are part of the executive committee, steering committee, uh, and you play an active role in our International Scientific and Medical Advisory Board as the CEO of Emerge Australia. Uh, and and we, we have a working group and we <coughs> welcome also Australian and international members to apply. It's free. You just have to uh, type on Google, I can see me and and you will reach our website and you will be able to register and see the latest news we have a lot of uh, support information for patient partners and the working groups are autonomous working group they are like think tanks so this is where patients may shape uh, the research agenda in canada and also shape international collaboration so that's why we welcome international members so i can see me is a very exciting uh, research network where it's a strong home, if I may say that word, for patients. That's wonderful. Um, of course, Canadians have got a really good record of, of research collaboration and networks. I've been part of a couple in other disease areas. So um, whilst I haven't been directly involved in I Can See ME yet, um, you have written to me and, and I'm really looking forward to um, being more involved in future. So and of course, we know that 
um, people with MECFS need to be seen. Their voices need to be heard and the collaboration with the research fraternity uh, and having them involved at every step of the way is really critical. So um, thank you for sharing um, that little bit of background information. I'm sure our listeners will be delighted to, to hear about that. So during your presentation at NCNED, which was entitled Deciphering MECFS by Combining Deep Phenotyping Strategies with Multiomic Approaches, you discussed development of innovative approaches focused on precision medicine. Could you please get, perhaps give us a layperson's outline, A, of what you mean by precision medicine and what the multiomic approaches are and why you believe they are so important? Thank you for this very important question. Uh, precision medicine is not just a buzzword uh, today. Uh, about translation of research in the clinical setting. It's more than that. Uh, as you know, and I will give you a very specific example. Right now in oncology, you know that you may end up with a different type or subtype of cancer. And by doing some genetic testing, they, they, they can the clinician can select the best drug for you because they know that if you are positive for that marker, you will respond. And that will avoid testing uh, different drugs that, that wouldn't be the best choice or wouldn't work for you. And this is what is a pretty good example for, for precision medicines. This, this can be applied to cardiovascular disease as well and, and, and many disease. So, so the future for MECFS will be the same. We know that Clinically speaking, and even when we look about at the molecular level, uh, MECFS patients are not the same, okay? They are different subgroup. And I know this is maybe uh, perceived as scary for some patients because they think that if they are not in the right or favorite subgroup, they may be uh, fall between two chairs and nobody will take care of them. This is not true. This is, in contrary, this is the opposite. We need to know uh, to which group you belong, to have very selective biomarkers that can help us to better understand your disease and let's say the most debilitating symptoms associated with, with your subgroup. And that can open the door to new treatment, new therapies that will be very tailored for you. So this is where the precision medicine uh, occur. In the past, you might have heard personalized medicine. Yes, I, that's what I was just going to say. I mean, I, I regret to tell you that medicine by definition must be personalized. Okay. <laughs> when the physician treats you, he's treating you, not yes. the population, not a group. So by definition, uh, personalized medicine is medicine, period. Yes, that's interesting because uh, I've worked in, in the ca cancer and kidney cancer space. And so definitely identifying um, what type of, of carcinoma it is and what kind of tumour you've got enables a treatment to be structured uh, just for that particular tumour type. So I understand it and I think that um, your explanation is really helpful. So, yeah, of course, but medicine needs to be personalised to the individual, so precision medicine sounds good to me. <laughs> 
And so now we go to the multi-omic approaches and, and why you believe they're so important. Maybe yeah, you the, can explain multi-omic. Yeah, so so omics is just the part of genomics, transcriptomics, or epigenomics, or metabolomics. So those are techniques and methods to investigate uh, a disease, especially complex chronic diseases. And uh, we just to to put the right perspective in terms of if you look about the genome, the genomics. Okay, so the genome we have about twenty two thousand genes, different genes, and all those genes are present in every single cells, but they are not active. So so some genes will be activated to make a neuron, or they would make uh, muscles, or uh, cardiomyocyte, or intestinal cell, or hepatocyte liver cells. So, but overall we have 20,000 genes. The problem with genomics, I would say, is even if you discover a mutation, this mutation, and we have a lot of private mutation, you and I have private mutation, even mutations that will stop a gene, but we won't develop a disease because either there's another family member that will take over, or in some time when there is no multiple family members in the same genes doing the more or less the same function, there will be another genes in the same pathway that will compensate. So, so, so that's why just looking for mutation, we will end up with a lot of mutation, but none of them are related to the development of a disease or even the progression of a disease. So, so often when I present that to my student, I say genomics is very exciting because of course, if we present a specific mutation, people will start to believe, oh, this is a true disease. But sometimes maybe it's it's also a false leading. So let's say that genomics is often a, a promises and we need to go to the next stage where when the gene is decoded or the read and that will make what we call a messenger RNA or a transcript, this, is, this uh, molecule will relay the, the, the message from the blueprint, the DNA, and the messenger RNA will be the one that will go and be decode and produce a product that we call protein. So now we are closer to what is really happening in the real time, because if there is a defective messenger RNA or the messenger is truncated, the product will be alterated. So, so that's why we are paying some time attention about the level of the messenger RNA in a single cell level or in a tissue. Uh, and that can also be a good predictor of what is going wrong. Maybe a genes that shouldn't be activated in the blood cells start to be activated. And now we start to be looking for a causal relationship between the disease and that in that gene. So, but the problem with the these transcript is now it's more complex because the genes can be read by different point of view can be also um, what we call a splice or alternative splicing, very complex term that just means that the transcript by itself can also be changed, okay? Naturally, also part of pathological processes. So from 22,000 genes, we may end up with over 140,000 transcripts. And that can lead to up to 1 million different proteins because the protein can be truncated, that can be um, modified by uh, adding different, uh, what we call a modification, chemical modification that would change their location inside the cell, change their properties, prevent interaction with other partner or their protein, 
or increase the, uh, the affinity for the protein that can lead to a disease. So you see in the omic spectrum from genomic, transcriptomics, and, and proteomic, and if you go to the metabolomics, so we will end up with very small molecules that are often the results of all those exchanges, whether the proteins are working perfectly or, or they are some, some doing some, some wrong uh, things. So we can deal with up to 1 million uh, metabolites, which are small sugars, small amino acids, uh, or, and, and this is more complex because that can be more often related to uh, the consequences of several exchanges, but very important. And depending where you look about those metabolite, metabolites in the plasma, several spinal fluids or a urine, uh, you may uh, have a different view depending the lens you are looking for. And, and sometimes we need to uh, combine different fluids or different aspects altogether to make sense. And to add more complexity, but also at the same time to reduce the complexity is we are looking also what we call epigenomics. Epigenomics is how your genome sense your environment and you will react but not by creating mutation in, in the DNA itself, but by modifying the DNA. So the DNA can be more compact, which means the genes won't be expressed or can be loosened. So we'll allow some complex to do the transcription or can also be methylated at the DNA level. So sometimes hypomethylation in the promoter region that drive a genes will increase the expression or decrease the expression. So Again, there's a different layers of complexity. And amongst those epigenetic mechanisms, we initiate our focus in the field of MECFS on small non-coding RNA that we call microRNA. And we have only to deal with uh, 22,600 mature microRNA in humans. So you see wow. much less than 22,000 genes. And, yeah, but the problem with each of these microRNA, they can target up to 200 different genes. But we wow. have tools to predict and validate that. So very small, but very powerful. And, and they are now involved more and more in different disease, cancer, cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative diseases. Um, and this is the future of molecular medicine because they are very stable. We can measure that in different biofluids. And you will see more and more, um, not only papers on that, but also commercial application in, in clinical setting using microRNA. Wow, that's amazing. I'm going to just take you back to part of your answer where you were talking about messenger RNA. Um, a lot of people with MECFS, uh, and I'm talking about vaccination now, uh, who had the mRNA vaccine found that it triggered their MECFS. Um, I'm interested in your comments uh, about the messenger RNA and activation and wondering whether you've got a view uh, on uh, why some patients were triggered um, after receiving mRNA vaccine. Uh, yes, this is something that happens. We have very few of them, uh, often healthcare uh, workers that were perfectly healthy and when they were amongst the very first to receive uh, the uh, mRNA vaccine, uh, some of them developed MECFS symptoms. So 
we we are in the process to investigate them okay i don't i don't have any definitive answer to give you or to share with the, your audience today but it's 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 happening and and not only with these uh, new uh, mRNA vaccine, but in the past, a few people getting a vaccination, uh, even for the flu, uh, they end up with ME-CFS-like symptoms. So uh, it's unclear whether they already have a genetics predisposition or even epigenetics predispositions to response and the vaccine acts more like a trigger, like a, a true a true infection. Uh, so that deserves further investigation for now. Okay, so uh, but uh, the um, I would say most of the uh, messenger RNA are actually in, and because they have been tested on millions of individuals now, are very very safe. If you consider the previous form of vaccine with attenuated virus or the other things that also create a lot of side effect. So nothing is perfect. But if you realize that how fast those uh, new uh, therapeutic tools or preventive tools have been developed uh, to a response to a major crisis, I think it's it's uh, something that uh, that is almost a miracle that uh, uh, we 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 didn't have more 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 severe side effect. Although the technology or the know-how that led to the development of these. Uh, messenger RNA vaccines have been developed about 25 years ago and, and has been recognized this year by the uh, the awards of a Nobel Prize of the of those that push the technology forward. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And people wouldn't necessarily understand that because everybody thinks that they've been developed just for COVID, but um, uh, they've been around for a long time. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and again, uh, the... the the message is uh, is that it's a very very small percentage of individual perfectly healthy that when they receive the vaccine, they develop MECFS like symptoms and and we will do a longitudinal follow up on them to see if eventually they will reverse back and and end up with their going back to a full remission and what's just a transition uh, of something or they will really end up as MECFS. And that deserve a lot. We need to follow more people like that, okay, to really have a definitive answer to your question. Fantastic. Thank you. Emerge Australia aims to ensure that anyone impacted by MECFS or long COVID has access to support, information and advocacy that empowers them with the knowledge and skills to make their lives more livable. We offer support to over half a million Australians who face MECFS and long COVID. So from your talk uh, at NCNED, um, you indicated that you've developed the first molecular test for diagnosing MECFS. Of course, that is, is, you know, one of the, it's like the holy grail, isn't it? If you can diagnose it and patients can find out what they've got early enough, um, then they can take some action to, uh, hopefully manage their illness a bit better. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Uh, so so again, we and, and it's very important that I mentioned that there is when I start in that field in 2015, um, I've been guided by a patient partner uh, that he, he that person explained to me that I need to really address 
oh, if I'm developing a test, it must be centered around the post-sectional malaise. And, and, and uh, I say, okay, I might have a tool because uh, we use in the past for uh, different purposes the uh, an, an inflated, inflated cuff to create a mechanical simulation that we apply on the arms. Uh, and we we got some success with this approach. So, so that's why we, we push our um, research program by uh, using as a focus the provocation maneuvers and I think we did a wise choice at that time because all the patients that came to us, even those having a very specific clinical diagnosis, you never know if it's really ME or ME with fibromyalgia or ME with something else. Plus, in average, uh, at least in our court, and because we are uh, investigating uh, primarily uh, housebound patients, so they are very severely sick, they are taking up to nine, 10 different medications. So those medications, a lot of them will have some effect on whatever biomarker you are looking. Could be on the microRNA, but could be on different proteins or peptide. So, so we cannot just neglect that and say, oh, that will be fine. I don't want to complicate my research. So that's why having a provocation maneuvers can reveal can first every participant being is on control because you 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 have the measurement at baseline before you do anything and after xyz times when when you do the provocation whatever the provocation is and and you neutralize if you see an effect is not probably not due to the drug because the drug is there at all time and we obviously cannot ask the patients to seize their medication for 24 or 48 hours because that can be too dangerous to, to do that. So, so that's why we, I think we did a major progress in the development of this diagnostic prognostic test because not only we can make the, the uh, accurate diagnosis over 90% of who is suffering of ME, but also we can further stratify uh, ME in different cluster or subgroup and these subgroup can uh, be indicative of some specific symptom like more brain fog or cognitive dysfunction, others related to orthostatic intolerance and other cardiovascular dysfunction. So that can give, give us a more uh, easier way to work with more homogeneous subgroup to find better biomarker or find, <clears throat> find some of them that can be actionable therapeutic targets. So which is something very important for us. So, so that's why this stratification is not just uh, uh, something to make better or wiser paper or complicated papers that we wish to publish, but it's to help patients, okay? This is the basis of what we're doing. We really want to help uh, the patients, but also their attending physicians to, to how to, to deal with their conditions and what would be the best uh, medication in that very specific group for that very specific patient. So again, we are going back to precision medicine. So this led us to a panel of 11 microRNA that is, they are very, very accurate. Uh, the only thing that we don't know today is if I'm testing, because unfortunately in, in Quebec, uh, we are a white, white Caucasian European ancestry. So we never test the the panel on Asian, African, or people from other countries. So we don't know to what extent uh, macroRNA can be shared at, at that level. But what is, in, is probably to help us is 
we probably must obey our response to uh, the same stress test in a very similar way. So again, the stress test can be a way to end up with the same response involving more or less the same macronid as opposed to you measure without the stress test simply with a blood uh, samples at baseline. So, so I think we need to test in different uh, ethnic background and, and to confirm that. And worse situation, we will just have to remove one, add more to be having a more, let's say, specific panel, or maybe one day an Australian panel if we need to do that. But I don't think Australians and Canadians are very, very different. I think we, we should probably be uh, very look alike and molecularly speaking. So that should work. Mm, and yeah. and 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 that can also guide us on on, on the whether some some drugs can be applicable to patients using this uh, this test. Yeah, uh, you make a really important point there, and and that relates to um, other cultures, and um, certainly that is a gap uh, here in Australia as well. For example, uh, we're just doing a little bit of research ourselves into. Uh, the prevalence of MECFS uh, and long COVID in our Aboriginal communities, but we don't have much data. There's not much to go by. So um, it it sounds from what you're saying that um, uh, Australia and Canada are very similar in that you haven't really got much further with that as well. And I think that's that's a huge gap um, that that all of us have to address in in terms of trying to understand, you know, what cultures develop uh, MECFS um, and um, and and what the triggers are in those populations. We we really don't know an awful lot. You're right. Mm. Mm. It's, it's it's a big issue. Um, can I ask you? If we fast forward from now, let's say we fast forward five years from now, where do you hope, where do you think MECFS research and clinical care might be? I think we we are very close to the development, first of all, the, very close to make sure that the research tools will be now commonly used in clinical setting. So five years, I think, is, is a reasonable timeline to uh, move the, from the bench to the clinics and eventually move toward the market. What is very um, important is how can research help a biotech industry or pharma, bio, biopharma industries to really consider the disease as something important. So they are already aware of that. And, and now with the long COVID is, 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 is I think, a, a very important leverage toward that direction, okay? Uh, I think there are still people seeing not the connection between MECFS and long COVID. That will be changed soon. We will have coming and others with, with key papers about that. But uh, we need to bring on board the, the, the diagnostic and pharma industry and having these tools. So, so if they can perceive the tools are not simply for research, but they can be applicable tomorrow. So whatever we have done since 2015, they can be used today, okay, to, uh, to really improve the diagnostic, 
and 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 it's possible. The only limitation right now we have is that because the tests are perceived as only as research tools, and a lot of let's say uh, federal regulatory agency needs to say to give their blessing and homologation. This is where there is already a first gap that academia are not involved in certification process, and 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 who will take that? So that must have some people from the private sectors that will say, okay, I will do the extra step, and because that that costs money to that, and and normally when we receive funding, we receive funding to do research, basic science, or clinical trial, but not to get homologation of the test. So there's already one gap. So we we already start the process in my lab because we are ISO 13485 certified, which is rare in academia. Uh, but this is the first uh, level to work with Health Canada and eventually FDA to engage in the academic certification process, which is it costs less money. And this is probably where foundation can also be involved, okay, to sustain the process. And eventually when you start to de-risk the process and now the tests are receiving an homologation, which means that insurers or even government will be willing to pay because there is an independent homologation by our regulatory agencies. And this is the critical step that is missing right now, not only for my test, but maybe others that are under development that we need to fill this gap, the first gap. And when we start to have uh, tests that are right now compatible with the diagnostic lab that are certified, so using qPCR machine, for instance. So of course, if you try to invent a new test with a new machine, with something, a new technology, forget it. That won't, that will take 15 years. Yes. Okay. So, so, so this is the immediate venue because when the tests start to recognize who is suffering of ME, MEFM, FM, or something else, uh, and the immediate application may be for the long COVID, and because we can now interrupt the vicious circle and prevent long-term sequelae, but also for the existing patients, okay? Even if you are suffering of MECFS during the last 25 years, trust me, the test will work on you and we might further define the drivers of your illness. And if we find them, I'm pretty sure that some of them can be a pretty good actionable therapeutic target. So we we had in the past some success working with attending physicians and guiding them by repositioning some drugs, okay? But again, it's N equal one, it's, it's for one specific patient. So it's precision, it's precision medicine, but very personalized. At that time, but but that will emerge. So more than one test that will be recognized and commercially available, uh, and and after that, uh, that will ease clinical trial. Because again, if you cannot recognize who is who in a MECFS group, yeah, that may leads to more failures yeah, or a lot of uncertainty. So so that's why by implementing uh, precision medicine that will speed up clinical trial. We will pre-select the right candidate for the right drug at the right time because also right time is, is important. So if we have these three combinations together, thanks to precision medicine, that will be a game changer for the whole field and for the sake of the health of patients. That's an amazing answer. And you've also covered what my next question was going to be, and that was about what you see the major obstacles as being in MECF risk research and, and clearly investment 
in uh, the research that you're talking about is is one of those and and the reliance on private donors to support that research, um, uh, you know, is a major obstacle. Exactly. And, and, and again, here in Australia, Canada, uh, or across the world, uh, uh, philanthropy is, is the actual solution. They are, you are the drivers, okay? And donors are the drivers, okay, to be honest, okay, in the actual uh, phenomenal progression in, in terms of the level of science and knowledge about MECFS. And, and that will also benefit to people suffering of long COVID. So, so, uh, but that's not enough for sure, because now we are talking about clinical trial. There's a big, big, big burden on, on the shoulder of different organizations to do something, to move forward faster. But there's also a, a lot of risk without precision medicine implementations that we may cascade on, on several um, failures. So we have the means to integrate both. We can go faster, we can implement precision medicines, and that can be a game changers. Uh, so, and 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 eventually we will bring not only a biotech or a, or a startup that are trying to find their, their place in this very competitive world of pharma, but also the big ones, because uh, they all, that, those are the ones having a lot of drugs on the market and they can define new applications and they have the know-how to, to bring those drugs towards new application and certification and, and make them available. So, so we need to bring them uh, to work with us closely, maybe through some education, one-to-one uh, -one meetings with them, and you, we need to nurture that a bit. But it's difficult when we didn't have enough money, enough time to, to do our own research at some point and to also further invest. So again, I presume that Emerge Australia is well positioned to, to make this type of uh, bridging all those worlds, to, worlds together and, and to ease uh, the process to make sure that a great idea is not lost in the desert. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, absolutely. It, it's challenging, of course. Uh, because uh, our, you know our, our pharma companies, if they haven't got the drug, then uh, uh, their willingness to invest uh, is not very great. So, but we're absolutely um, very committed to working collaboratively with our researchers uh, all over the world, really, to help to uh, bridge some of those gaps and. Uh, hopefully bring uh, new uh, and innovative therapeutics to market, uh, which is what the entire MECFS world is, is looking for. I've just got one last question, and I should have asked it earlier, but it relates to long COVID. So, you know, we say that science hasn't yet really delivered um, the answer as to whether, you know, on a molecular level or cellular level, long COVID and MECFS are the same uh, or exactly how they differ, but their impact for patients is the same. Where do you think that uh, that field is right now as far as, you know, the similarities, differences between the two? Because as you say, uh, long COVID is a lever, 
We've been using it now in Australia uh, at Emerge Australia for at least 18 months. But from a scientific and research perspective, where do you see that field being in terms of providing those answers about the two? I think that will uh, come soon. So you have to understand that the very first paper on, on long COVID, okay, like COVID papers as well, uh, came from uh, people that are non-expert in MSFS, I would say, uh, and, and they collect samples, they are top expert, they are clinical trialists and specialists in internal medicines, and, and they did their best to try to characterize the acute phase of the disease and now uh, the long COVID uh, issues. And, and they have no clue because most of the classical lab tests are negative or not really informative about the long COVID aspect. And this is where the expert in MECFS can bring uh, a new set of lens, okay, that will uh, make the connection with MECFS and you know, related condition like fibromyalgia. And we we will publish soon a series of papers showing that we have a better molecular understanding of what is happening. Uh, right now with the actual panel of 11 microRNA, we apply that to long COVID, non-hospitalized long COVID. And now we can have a definitive call of who will develop ME, ME with fibromyalgia or simply fibromyalgia. The first three group represent, at least in our cohort in Quebec, uh, 60% of the case. So at six months, so when when we, we select an individual with a six-month long COVID and up, uh, they are seems to be crystallized in the development of ending up as ME, MEFM, RFM. But the same panel also allowed us to pick up other groups like uh, the one we call neurological uh, group and uh, another group that we call the respiratory group, like uh, looks like more like emphysema or severe emphysema or COPD, uh, chronic obstructive uh, pulmonary disease. So so this is very important. And lately we, we got um, new investigation that by separating this long COVID, we were able to collect additional macroRNA and other uh, marker, uh, the protein levels. So we are we will pursue that to further confirm our call. So, so not only the microRNA can identify who is your MECFS, but we, we will have additional proof that this is the case. And um, one thing that we did not really or I did not really answer is about the deep phenotyping. So because we have the way to measure PAM by measuring the brain oximetry, heart and uh, uh, rate and respiratory rate during the stress test and, and also the markers uh, on, on a longitudinal way. So on several days. So we know that I'll, when I, I can show you and I, I did during the conference that you can see AME patterns and, and uh, uh, M ME like from a long COVID patterns and they are very the same. So, so we have a lot of demonstration and proof that now we can physiologically, molecularly uh, speaking, make the demonstration that there, are, there will be unfortunately long COVID individual that will end up as ME uh, and, and with or without fibromyalgia. But the good news is if there's any good news is maybe other people will develop something else and again, it's important to recognize this at the earliest stage possible because the treatment would be very different. Yes, yes. Well, that's uh, we can't wait for those papers to come out because uh, certainly in Australia, um, our government needs to hear these messages and 
um, you know, we need to really push forward with uh, strategies for treatment and uh, also support, particularly for uh, people both with ME-CFS and long COVID. So um, my final question to you uh, would be, um, what kind of final message would you like to leave for our audience? I would say, uh, do not give up. Do not give up on us. Okay, we we are really working, and when I say us, not myself, but the whole research communities in the world. Yeah, we are well aware that you cannot wait anymore, uh, and we are well aware that the number of MSFS sufferers will increase with the long COVID, and we can do more. We can do better. Of course, the funding is always an issue. There are a lot of bright minds, and, and we need also to empower the next generation of scientists or clinical scientists to, to work with us and, and to fill the gap, because right now we might face a generational gap. There's a lot of very experimented clinicians that are leaving because they need to, to take their retirement. Well, for one we're losing, we cannot even replace by one. And, and, and that's why if, if research can bring tools available, we might have more clinicians interested about MECFS because we have answers. We have tools. It can work with tools. If we don't provide tools, we will be just focusing on guidelines which are, are doing what they can, but that's not enough. So in the next five years, you will see a lot of transformation in the fields. This is my not only my hope, this is probably my personal engagement today with you guys. And 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 uh, we will present not only more uh, exciting science, but we will give us the means to translate this exciting science to something that can improve health. This is a strong commitment and and I will uh, follow through this commitment, okay, with all my colleagues because we truly believe that we can transform the field and make serious change that will improve your life. So do not give up on us. Thank you. That is such a wonderful final message, Professor Moreau. Thank you so much for your time today. We so appreciate having you as our first guest of our series three clinical podcast. So thank you very much. Um, I'm sure that our listeners will have found this extraordinarily helpful, even if they may have to listen to it in small chunks. But uh, we let this interview go on because you had so many important things uh, that you were sharing with us. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Anne, uh, for the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Thank you. So today's podcast is part of our clinical series brought to you by Merge Australia. Our aim is to bring the work of our brilliant clinicians and researchers from all over the world to our Australian MECFS and long COVID community, promoting the latest research developments and providing hope. This is a platform where together we can explore the pressing issues faced by 250,000 people with MECFS in Australia and at least 400,000 more with long COVID. Tune in again for our next interview and don't forget, for more information, subscribe to the Emerge Australia newsletter and visit our website on www.emerge.org.au. 
Thank you again, Professor Moreau. Enjoy the rest of your trip down under, and we will look forward to keeping in touch and hearing more about your exciting work. Bye for now. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. And I hope someday you'll join us and the world.